You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello there, this is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And so today, uh, well, this is Why We Do What We Do. And uh, today we are going to talk about some research stuff. Yes. And specifically kind of how to do it. And this is a topic that I really love and it might sound really boring and hopefully you didn't see like research design, um, which isn't going to be the title, Um, but hopefully you don't hear research and then just want to run screaming. There are some really interesting conceptual issues around when you're doing psychological research and why that's a little bit different perhaps in um, from what you might see from other research. And the styles of it. Yeah. And I would urge like you can use these sort of tips and tricks sometimes uh, yourself, right? In your own life. Yeah. And uh, specifically, we're going to talk about case studies. And this is one that I think and I was hoping would be interesting to people, especially because case studies are something that people look at and say, well, that's just that's just a case study. That's not really evidence for anything. And although there is uh, there are a lot of arguments and we'll go into them. And of course, that they have some validity to them. I want to kind of stand on the on the side of this and make a case for those case studies. I want to say that maybe there's something that's useful there and, and, you know, don't just throw them out. Um, Maybe there's something we can we can learn from this all right so let's start with a study in general what is it um yeah so when we're doing psychology and you need to do some kind of study uh and this is true i guess most of most or all scientific fields it means that there's some systematic and scientific investigation where you are recording something there's something in the universe you want to know more about and so you're going to take some deliberate approach to recording the thing that you're interested in to try and learn more about it And specifically in psychology, we observe that there are these things, and by things I mean, you know, living organisms, and that they have this really interesting special relationship to the universe that's maybe different from things that aren't these living organisms. And um, these these things that we observe, they move, and they move in relation to the world around them, and they do it really fast. Because you could even try and make the case that, like, well, you have the sun, and things move in relation to the sun, which is true. But in this case, we're talking about either alive and this happens like really, really quickly relative to some of those other things. And they change really, really fast too. So once we've decided that, okay, we observe that there are these really interesting organisms that have these special relationships. And so um, it, we're this field psychology. We're, we want to learn more about those things. Um, we're going to set up these systems of measurement and these observations so that we can observe or we can describe those patterns that we observe. And then we have to make choices about how we're going to measure them and also take into account the fact that when we choose to observe them, we're only getting a snapshot of the whole the whole phenomenon that we're interested in. And so the choices we make about that measurement and the angle that we observe and how we arrange those conditions so that we can record it, that impacts the way that we're really able to understand it and the sort of measurements and data that are produced as a product of doing that, that, that science, basically. Yeah, if you think about something as simple as like health and fitness, you can measure so many different things. Right? Yeah, you can, and from a lot of different angles, too. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't measure them all at once. It's just not a thing. I mean, maybe you could, but like when practically almost no one ever can ever. Well, and there's, there's just, there's so many things that you could take and you try and take into account. And so, you know, your heart health is one measure of health, but your diet is also a measure of health and how those things relate to each other is a measure of health. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these things are, are considerations. And that's also true of psychology. You know, every scientific field has infinite levels of complexity. And in order to understand it, we kind of have to choose, this is the focus and the way that we're going to take. Okay. Uh, this, there's, this is the strategy we're going to have to try and understand this type of phenomenon. 
Yeah, and sometimes even when you measure it, you can alter it, right? Oh, yeah, always. So you can throw yourself off if you're trying to, like, you know, really study something in general. Yeah. Whether you know it or not. So if you might, you know, decide that the unit of measurement you want to use to understand something really didn't capture the event, then you won't have very interesting data. You won't have a lot to say about it. Maybe you need to choose your measurement system, or maybe there's not really that much to see there. (laughs) That could also be the case. Yeah. Or, you know, some combination of those things. Or like maybe like in the health and diet realm, like maybe measuring itself, you're not measuring quite the right thing, right? Or like the measuring alters other things that you don't realize. Oh yeah. So if you're someone who is, you're wanting to understand your own health, then simply by measuring like your calorie intake and your nutrient intake, that changes, you have a reaction to that and you then subsequently change your behavior to correspond with maybe what you think would be a more ideal form of your diet nutrition. And that would then change how you understand those data. Yeah, exactly. So in psychology, there's four main research strategies, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's naturalistic observation, correlational research, case studies, and experimentation. And there's other ways of doing research, but those are sort of the main categories. And so each of these uh, are sort of characterized by certain features of how they're conducted. And uh, a lot of them can have some overlap, but the one that we were going to focus on today primarily, and that is often regarded as being maybe less useful is this case study. So just to really quick summarize, naturalistic observation is is what it kind of sounds like is when you're going to be in the situation that the thing normally occurs. So let's say you're interested in understanding marine biology rather than capture a squid from the ocean and put it in a tank in your lab and then see how that squid behaves in your tank. You'd actually go out into the ocean and sort of from a distance, see what it does in its natural environment. And then there's correlational research. And this is just simply measuring how often two things change in relation to one another mm-hmm. um, or at the same time, not even in relation to one another, just at the same time, really. Um, and then there's uh, case studies, which we're going to get into in more depth, but that's um, an in-depth analysis of one particular phenomenon you're interested in. And then the last one is experimentation. And in this one, this is the really heavy like systematic control where you are going to specifically make sure that only the thing you're interested in is present and everything else that could be a variable is um, either held static or is completely removed as much as you possibly can so that you can look at one thing at a time and see how it changes. And of course, people have realized that sometimes when you do that, it's not the one variable, but the relation of the variables to each other that can have the effect. Um, so sometimes it's a lot of variables. Sometimes it's the order in which they're presented. And sometimes it's the context in which they're presented that can have the effect. But that's a whole other other discussion, I think. So dude, what is a case study? In psychology, it is one of the oldest methods, right? Yeah, this is one of the oldest ways of trying to understand a phenomenon that is like recorded. Yeah, so you use some sort of descriptive research approach to obtain an in-depth analysis of some sort of person, group, or phenomenon. So sometimes there's direct measurement that's involved and even like manipulation of certain variables, right? So they're trying to influence something to some, some degree. In case studies? In case studies, yes. But so I guess what I'm going to ask, sometimes they're experimental in nature and sometimes they're not. Yeah. So a lot of them, they don't, a case study in and of itself does not necessarily mean it is a scientific experiment. Exactly. It could be. 
Right. And it makes it hard. So we're going to try to talk about how to distinguish some of those things a little. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there are, now there is a subsection of this. There, there's something called a single subject design. And this sort of, it, it shares a lot of commonalities with the idea of both case studies and also with experimentation. Um, and also sometimes with natural, the, the, it can have some overlap with the other ones. But we're, for this episode, going to go ahead and consider single subject research designs as their own subcategory. And we're not going to go in depth into how those are conducted and, and how they sort of work, but talk more about uh, case studies um, more generally. Okay, so I looked up uh, just general resources, whether it was from uh, different institutes like the American Psychological Association, right? Right. Uh, all the way down to your people on YouTube that throw 100, 150,000 views on a, on a video or just kind of like describing what it is for loosely on a PowerPoint or something, you know? Yeah, totally. And so there's a, a bunch of different kinds I found. So there's individual case studies, um, a set of individual case studies, community studies, which kind of reminds me of anthropology sort of research and stuff. Yeah social group studies studies with organizations and institutions i think law is a good example of like a system that's really established around looking at these sort of case studies and understanding them and it's a good point using them for training as well actually which is really really cool and interesting so for a specific example not like a law case but that they will learn about historical cases in like court cases that Mm -hmm. were you know a single instance of something happening that then had this effect on the overall like system their judicial system yeah and that's how you have to my understanding at least from some friends who go through that process like you are taught to present those sort of things both historically as they were presented from various different perspectives as they were presented so you're kind of getting ready to do that yourself but there's also studies of events roles and relationships so that could be something as large as like the cuban missile crisis or things like 9-11 or particular events that happen um good or bad you know like the rise of some sort of star to some sort of fame or tragic events that happen as well yeah so the important and that those are great examples because they really highlight the important aspect of case studies as the fact that they are looking at a single example of something and doing a real deep dive on that thing and where it could exist as part of a larger category. So, you know, terrorism might be a large category, but then um, the attacks in the United States and New York on 9-11 would be a, you could do a case study on, you know, an in-depth understanding of what happened in that particular terrorist attack. And though each one has some unique elements, you know, uh, someone who is more interested in the in the larger context of terrorism would look at that and say, you know, they want to know more about other instances and not just one example. But I think it also highlights the point of how every instance is has something unique to understand and unique to offer. And this is true looking at psychology of people. If you look at one single person and you want to under, you, you do this huge, I don't say huge, but you do a really thorough investigation of what's going on for that person, um, that might really tell you a lot about at least the experience for them. And that might be clinically relevant and that you're trying to do some help for them, or it might be more generally relevant in that, wow, this is a really unique circumstance, but I wonder if anyone else has had this experience. Um, but for whatever reason, it wasn't documented or hasn't been talked about yet, or, you, you know, otherwise isn't really known. And uh, all of those things, you know, there are a whole bunch of unique circumstances that can be grouped together in a sort of general category. And that's why I think that the case studies are so interesting is because they're those unique circumstances that can fit inside of that larger one, but there's so much story in each one of those situations. So what are some of the typical methods that we can see? Like how are these things carried out? Um, Well, a common way that this is done, and I guess just sort of going back to the general way that this, uh, this is sort of carried out in psychology, 
someone who actually really liked the idea of case studies was uh, Oliver Sacks. Do you know who that was? No. Oh, okay. Well, he was he was a really uh, famous neurologist. Uh, you might actually know some of his books. He wrote a book called um, "The Man Who Mist- Mistook His Wife for a Hat," and uh, and things like that. And he was uh, he really liked the idea of case studies, and he, uh, which I, which I think is awesome. And he. Uh, he specifically did a lot of case studies where he would, uh, you know, find these people who needed help or had something interesting going on with them, and he he really wanted to explore that and understand it in depth. And so um, his strategy and a lot of common strategies or methods that are used in this are doing personal interviews. And so you are just asking people a lot of questions. Usually they're open ended, but they can be closed ended, and it's usually a very sort of organic discussion where you allow the conversation to just kind of flow as it will. But you're trying to learn as much information as you can. Um, another way that is done, and he also did this, is direct observation, where you are simply seeing, um, you know, exactly what is happening in this to this particular individual with this particular circumstance. And then there's these more sort of um, generic ones, uh, these psychometric tests, and these are going to be administered via questionnaires or, you know, by sort of mining the records um, of of people and then doing statistical analyses on those. So those are some of the general strategies for implementing um, a case study where you want to learn a lot about a particular individual or a particular event. Now, another thing to uh, describe, now case studies, although you can learn a lot about a single thing and you want to gather as much data as you can, these actually really differ from correlational research and naturalistic observation because they typically involve actually looking at specific variables or specific, I guess, uh, causes that could be there. and Um, maybe even controlling some of those causes or those variables such that you can understand how those are related to the the phenomenon you're interested in. In the naturalistic observation and correlational research, you actually don't change anything. You simply watch. In naturalistic observation, you're just there sort of observing. You might pick a few things in specifically that you want to keep track of. Um, And in correlational research, you might pick two variables in particular that you're interested in, but um, you're not ever going to really change anything. In case studies, you might, because in case studies, you're often just trying to understand something. And so you might be actually changing things constantly. You might be doing more observation, but you're also digging up as many different angles as you can about it. Um, But that's how those sort of differ from the, those research. Now it's, it's different from an experiment because in an experiment, you are are trying to rule out the influence from other causes and other variables as much as possible. And those will often be sort of isolated to a, a particular setting. And also in a case study, you can really only infer a potential causal relationship between one particular variable you're interested in, but it, you can't actually really prove a direct link in, in that for most of them. Okay. So unlike an actual experiment, the only suggest some sort of casual kind of, there's something going on here, right? Right. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Yeah. So it's similar to correlational research in the way that you can see that two things coexist, but you don't necessarily know how they coexist. All right. So in psychology, across the different branches of psychology and approaches from it, it seems that these case studies are most often used in like clinical research describes some sort of rare event or conditions that aren't typically seen, or if they have been, they're not well documented, right? Yeah. And that's an important point when I come back to is that part of the point of doing these is often to say like, look, we found something really strange and we want to know as much about it as possible um, for this particular individual. Now there are, there are other things to be gained from case studies and that's not always their intention, but that is sort of one. 
Yeah, so they also seem to be used uh, under circumstances where, like, it seems that there's some sort of contradiction or something that's different from these, like, more well-established principles or at least our understanding of psychology at that moment, right? And at least what you'd expect in that particular case. Okay. So, yeah, so there's some examples we'll get into soon with, like, Phineas Gage, Little Albert, Anna Oath, those sort of things, right? Mm Mm-hmm. In general, case studies uh, case studies are are very similar to this idea of the single case design, but they can involve a lot of individuals, and so because it can take place over a you know a specific event or you know a group of people, and so you might say like oh this is how organizations work, but then you do a case study really of one org- organization only, and you get a really deep dive on how that particular organization is functioning, and uh, there are some distinct advantages and disadvantages, and one one thing I think that's really important to focus on here is that when you're using one of these research strategies, either naturalistic observation, case study, um, direct observation, experimentation, whatever it is you're going to do, you do that because you are interested in a specific question. And as you said, in case studies, you are often interested in the relevance um, for uh, clinically. So how, uh, what is the, you know, you're really oriented to a particular outcome to help someone or to solve some problem or something like that. And so there are some advantages to using these um, using case studies as that research designed to do that. And um, we'll get into some, let's, let's actually dig into some very specific examples of really famous case studies that sort of highlight w- how we can learn some interesting things when you look at uh, just do these really in-depth analyses of single events or people. Yeah, so in 1848, Central Vermont, Phineas Gage, right? Yeah. Packing in some explosives, goes off early, shoots a rod through his face. Yeah, and... And he is, survives. Yeah, there's a, it was crazy that, you know, uh, I don't even know how much, like three inches around, this giant thing goes right through his eye and through his brain and then the guy sits up and starts talking and people are like ah zombie anyway this was this really interesting case because this is one of the first documented cases of someone sustaining massive brain damage and basically continued on their life as a functioning individual and it happened and that had to do with where the rod um destroyed the section of his brain i feel like we actually brought him up in a previous discussion we have i remember when though okay well maybe when we were doing Something about way the brain. back. Yeah. yeah, that was a while ago. Anyway, so it's an interesting case, and they really followed, you know, the people who have been interested in Phineas Gage's case, especially neurologists or those interested more generally just in how the brain sort of works and how damage to it affects personality, which is kind of a teaser for an upcoming episode we have. It uh, They explored, you know, what happened to him immediately afterward. What was the actual effects of the damage of the rod? Uh, where did it hit him? Is it relevant to other people? Does this tell us a lot about that particular part of the brain? How did the rest of his life go on did he live in a shorter life or was it relatively the same length as what would be expected um you know and all these questions that would be asked about someone who suffers this kind of damage you know people did as much as they could a really deep dive on this and unfortunately for phineas this was something that he didn't volunteer for and so i think he got a lot of unwanted attention and was unwilling maybe to be a guinea pig and doing a lot of experiments because there wasn't a whole lot of data after this, at least in an experimental sense. There was just a lot of reports on, yes, he did go on to um, actually lead a relatively normal life. He had a lot of issues with um, uh, impulse and his reactions to people. He's, he was a lot angrier and uh, curt with people after this. Um, his, his whole personality sort of changed. But he did go on to you know get a different job where he wasn't really having to be around people as much and, uh, and lived for the most part a sort of normal life, although he was missing his left eye and um and yeah but there was there was a lot to be learned about how the brain sort of works in relation to uh, specific isolated acute brain damage and how that might or might not affect um, behavior and subsequent sort of health and well-being all right so another one that played a pretty historic role was anna o anna o 
essentially, uh, I think is a, a big case study in that it was kind of the first place where there was really this like talking cure or psychoanalysis that was kind of documented. What now, was the problem she had? There was a lot of symptoms of hallucinations and like personality changes, uh, rambling speech, and they couldn't find a physical cause. So there was a guy named Brewer that Brewer that visited her almost daily to talk about her thoughts and feelings. It's uncertain certain since it was an experimental in nature, like how much of a degree it actually affected her. And it turns out that there was some sort of um, likelihood that there was some sort of epilepsy going on as well. Oh, okay. Um, but it was this kind of pioneering case that influenced Freud to some degree, apparently. So uh, a case study that apparently influenced a pretty large movement in psychology. Yeah. All right. So the next one, I'm going to let you get it. I'm going to let you take. Okay. Yeah. Little Albert um, infamous experiment where they were making the kid afraid of like a, a rat. Now, the purpose of this experiment, um, and th- this one was, it is a case study except that it didn't follow him after the sort of initial research. And so this one um, was a case study that was had some experimentation to it. And um, the this was done by Watson and Rayner, and they were interested in, I guess, trying to prove this hypothesis that emotions were conditioned and that they were learned and that they weren't something that you're just born with or that you just have. And specifically, they wanted to show that you could teach a phobia or not really necessarily a phobia, but you could teach fear of something. And so what they did is they took this one particular individual who wasn't demonstrating a lot of emotion and they would present it with this. Um, I, I want to say it was a white bunny or a white rat, something like that. And they would, they would give it to this kid and the kid was like, okay, cool bunny. Uh, but then, and they would try and scare him and he wasn't very easily scared. So what they ended up doing is it was either like a really loud metal rod, I think, or symbols, I think it was a rod and behind his head and they would hit it. So it made this really loud clanging sound. So as soon as the, the bunny was there and he touched it, then they'd be like loud, loud clanging sound. Um, and that startled him and he started crying and they did this repeatedly until that when they presented him with a rabbit he would just start crying and screaming and yeah this is like toddler level very young not really any language yes 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 very and then they were able to show that uh this would generalize to certain other things anything that shared a lot of characteristics like if it had been a bunny i can't remember if it was then also a dog and a cat that were the same color had similar reactions but something that was like a fake santa's beard didn't necessarily have that reaction or or like a it wasn't the color white it was Mm -hmm. the property of a small white animal um that that sort of did this and uh, but there the whole point of this um this experiment they did was to specifically show that you could um, condition emotions. Now, I think that the the counter argument made there, and this is maybe a little off topic, but is the, the the idea that okay, well, just because you can doesn't mean that that's how it happens for all people. And their I guess retort to that might have been, but it could be because we showed that it at least could be uh, something that was learned and conditioned, and so it at least uh, added to our understanding of emotions and how some of those things can be learned and conditioned, and um, and maybe all of them. You know, I think the the jury is not out on the the full scope of how that applies just yet especially because it is ethically inappropriate to scare the crap out of toddlers to do research yeah a- anymore <laughs> i guess it wasn't yeah, at some yeah point. he had a lot of ridicule both of them did yeah in the professional realm and uh even switch i don't know the degree to which it was obviously influenced some degree but they i know at least watson shifted more out of that realm yeah yeah into advertising and marketing i think yeah he left the the sort of psychological research realm and went to better paying things i think he got fired but Whatever. Yeah, whatever it was, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, it, it was at least interesting to um, look at this as sort of a, a specific case study of this 
this this kid and how this might work out but again after that after they were done unfortunately uh he was kind of removed from their uh their care and nothing else has really followed up with him um a lot of people have speculated wildly about what happened to him but nobody really knows for sure what mm-hmm. the outcome was so that one again there was there was some interesting things there and obviously an infamous case and um and still uh, not as in-depth as some other case studies Another one that maybe is more in depth is uh, is also pretty famous, but maybe not so well known, is by Jean Piaget, and so he was a French uh, child developmental psychologist, and he was developing his theory of child development, and the way that he did this was specifically observing his own children, and so his population was. I think three, two or three. And what he did is he, as he watched them, uh, you know, grow and develop and develop their, their language and their um, cognitive skills and their behaviors and all of this, their, their social awareness. He was watching this and going, Oh, that must be what's going on with people when they're developing. And so he created these, uh, his principles of, and his theories of personality and human behavior based on his observations of his own children. um, The few that he was able to observe. And so uh, he did a really, really in-depth analysis of measuring, you know, when they started talking and the things that they talked about and doing a lot of content analysis around um, what was their language like at particular ages and when did they start to demonstrate these certain characteristics he was interested in, like empathy and sharing and perspective and that sort of thing. Um, when did they start? When did they start being able to? make accurate estimations about things where they didn't, you know, that involved either measurement or time or predictions and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so he sort of created his own theory that was, you know, based on those observations that followed this sort of stepwise um, pattern of development. And uh, that was, again, there was a small group of people that he was using very small and small people because they were children. <laughs> but that was, it was effectively a case study because it was just these, uh, it was one of the most infant, or I guess one of the most famous in terms of case studies, uh, at least being known as a case study because he developed his entire theory based on such a small sample. And it was doing this very thorough description of the steps that he was observing and fitting those to a sort of hypothetical narrative that he had about what those steps were. Now, Later on, he did go into uh, larger groups of like classrooms and children, and, and he was applying the same steps to them, and he was seeing similar patterns. So that was sort of replicating what his findings were, but at least the initial development was from a case study. Although these, uh, you know, based on these studies, a lot of these that we've mentioned, these are all pretty old. You know, these were hundreds of years ago. Uh, well, some of them um, were in the last maybe 100 years, but they don't happen as much anymore. They used to be very popular, especially among clinical psychologists. However, a lot of this correlational and experimental research has more generally uh, regarded and cited and used by clinicians. It used to be very popular, but the reason that they made that switch, there's a lot of arguments sort of for and against. All right, so some arguments against. First one, ready? Yep. So for one thing, any field at all, really, can find or twist any handful of examples to match their agenda. So this is how psychoanalysis was able to support its claim uh, with what I'd say is, quote, evidence. Right. Yeah, so um, just to sort of, I guess, state what you just said is that, you know, you could have a few examples that seem to match your argument, and that because you have those few examples, it seems all you know great. Now that's the, sort of the argument against the use of it. Okay, so I think that now, of course, as I mentioned, there there is some legitimate criticism there, in that you can sort of find any claim to legitimize the argument that you're making. And so I think just to look at that and say that those examples where it was just a handful of 
I guess, fringe stuff, or it was interpreted in a really specific way to support those evidence that really just teaches us how to be careful when we're using case studies. And so that it's not that there's nothing useful in case studies. If you've heard that expression, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, is uh, there's, there's still something of value in doing case studies. And that the people who have done that poor usage has actually um, really enabled researchers to more precisely hone those skills and methods for um, for how they do those case studies so that subsequent case studies are actually much more useful and a lot better. And I, I thought of an analogy about this in that um, recently we had to take uh, one of our cats to get vaccinated at the clinic and uh, one of them in the past has had sort of a reaction to vaccines. And so uh, we were saying that and the vet had told us, you know, uh, the company that makes the vaccine against whatever it was they were, they were giving them, when they first did it, it had a chemical in it that would uh, it would lead to this um, this like swelling that could actually become cancerous, and so obviously that was a huge problem. But in in doing that mistake, they learned a lot safer and better way to make that vaccine, so it no longer has that outcome. And so this is a similar thing in that you know a lot of times it's those non-examples of those bad cases are the ones that teach us how to do it better the next time. And that's why I think that even though there are instances where some of those fields could sort of, you know, grab a handful of examples and say, look at, we've got all this evidence. The ability to do that allows us to form case studies in such a way that that sort of thing no longer counts as evidence. All right. Ready for argument number two? Yes. All right. So it's understood that as all people are different, this sort of in-depth analysis of one is going to be really hard to then take to the population as a whole, right? So generally it's going to be hard to find anything when we're just looking so closely at one individual. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What do you have to say about that? Um, let, let me give you an example, Abraham. So let's say there's an extraterrestrial, uh, and they swoop down to earth and pick up a very traumatized, deeply disturbed suicidal maniac, and they do an in-depth case study of them. Okay they might actually incorrectly conclude that all humanity was very similar in these sort of patterns uh, be based off this individual. Yeah, and although that is true, um, sometimes investigating the, the common patterns that do exist can allow psychologists to sort of derive the principles that are universal. And I have a really great quote from a psychologist um, I'll use to, to come back to this point. But basically, this, the, the gist of it is if there are universal principles that sort of govern all of psycho psychological uh, interactions and behavior, then invest investigating any one person would really illuminate those principles. Okay. But another thing to point out here with that, that deranged individual you were talking about is, as we mentioned at the beginning, it's kind of the point of the, uh, of, of case studies to find where those examples are different from the rest and do those in-depth analyses. So sometimes a case study, the, the point of it um, as I said, it depends on the question you're asking. If the question you're asking is, does, um, you know, can we learn about all of humanity with this one particular case? Well, a lot of times the answer is no. Although again, you can, if there are universal principles that are true for everyone, then that would be true in that one person. Um, if your question is, can, um, how can we understand what's going on for this person? And especially going back to that idea of the clinical relevance is how can we help this person? Um, it's kind of the point to find those sort of out there fringe examples that don't fit into the normal experience and really dive, do a deep dive on those. All right. So uh, argument, argument against number three. So case studies may suggest that one variable was responsible for a particular behavior, but it was just that behavior for that person. 
Yeah. And so this is why, you know, it's, and again, this, there is some truth to that, but that's why it's important to do repeated testing whenever possible. And it's necessary in order to really derive any um, solid evidence. And also the more, I guess, the longer you can do your observations and the more, I guess, complete of a picture you can get of the phenomenon you're interested in, uh, the better of an understanding you can get. And also if you can get a series of similar outcomes with other people, then that's going to be a lot more convincing uh, to build the evidence and support of the thing that you're observing there. All right. So to kind of piggyback off that, what worked for one person may not work for another, or it may not even be relevant at all. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And so typically a lot of data is collected in case studies, um, or at least in some versions of case studies that allow for at least a comparison for a couple of people. So you might take what one, what's going on for one person that you have a lot of data for in that case study and look at another person and say, well, I can at least see where they don't overlap. So probably what's going on with you is not what was going on with the other person. Or alternatively, there's, these are the places where they do overlap. So when talking about the naturalistic observation and correlations, those will typically result in um, just a small set of data, but you get it from a, a large array of sources. You get a lot of context, but not a lot of data. And then in case studies, you get an enormous amount of data, but it's from a really small section you know, uh, of individuals. And so one example I was thinking about this is that um, if you were to look at, like, let's say you wanted to understand how volcanoes work in general. Okay. If you were to isolate, you know, one particular volcano and look at how often it erupts, that's not really going to tell you how well necessary, like how, when to expect a volcano on the other side of the world when that one's going to erupt. And uh, so some of them might be really active and some of them might not. And so getting a little bit of information from all the volcanoes in the world is not going to necessarily tell you when this one volcano is going to erupt, but getting a lot of information about this one one volcano is going to tell you maybe a lot about how to expect, well, I mean, as much as is possible, mm -hmm. given given how difficult they are to study. Um, but we'll tell you a lot more about whether uh, the patterns and the activity of that volcano. And so um, that's the similar idea here is that, you know, if you want to learn a lot about this individual, then gathering a lot of information from the context of this person is going to be more helpful than looking at all the people in the world and then trying to generalize, uh, trying to distill from all that information something that's true for that one person. All right, so there's a lot of strengths and weaknesses to these, and we've kind of been highlighting indirectly here, right? Yeah. So some of the common strengths uh, that are reported, not just by us, but like general textbooks and resources out there, would be that they're really good, like we're saying, in documenting these rare cases. They can actually be the beginning of a research line, or like we saw with Anna O, maybe even a whole development of an approach to psychology, right? Yeah, like a whole field of study. Yeah. They are descriptive. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're predictive, right? Yeah. Thoroughly um, descriptive. But thoroughly descriptive, yes. And they they can suggest future uh, directions for like much larger research studies. Now, on the limitation side, like we're saying, we can't generalize the results to a wider population necessarily. There's an extreme limitation or degree to which we can actually do that. And the researcher's own subjective situations may actually influence those sort of things. So I, I'd say that they're at a higher risk. Um, one of the limitations is they could be at a higher risk for bias. It's not inherent in that design, right? But they can just because you don't have the experimental control setup. Well, yeah, and I think if, if you spend a lot of time learning a lot about someone else, you can become invested with that individual to the point that you, you kind of have a way you would like for things to be going with them. And it's and not that 
not to say that this happens for everybody, but you then kind of start to see the world through the glasses or the, the perspective of this is what I want for this person. And so, you know, again, I'm going to ignore the things that are not in line with what I want and I'm going to hold on to the things that I do want or the opposite could happen of like, I'm going to be especially sensitive to the sensitive to the things that I don't want. And I'm going to sort of um, downplay the, the value of the things that I do want more of. But those things can definitely come into how you interpret um, for the researcher. Yes. Um, so in addition, it can be very difficult to replicate, uh, which is a key part of the scientific approach that Critical. in and of itself, we could jump into a whole episode on. Yeah. The lack of replication that occurs uh, is kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. There was uh, something in the news um, about this. I think it was either last year or maybe, early, maybe even earlier this year where they had uh, there was a specific group of people trying to replicate scientific research and or specifically psychological research and were unable to do it in something like 80 or 90 percent of the studies that they did, um, which was crazy. And so that would be actually a really fun one to dive in what they found and why they found it. All right. And the last one is that they're just really time consuming, which isn't necessarily a, like, like I'm saying, it could be a limitation, um, but it depends on whether or not you need to need to, or want to put in that time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is, again, this isn't an argument against case studies, but it's a consideration in doing case studies is do you have the time to do that thorough of an investigation to understand this really well? Uh, so we're ready to sort of wrap up our discussion here? Yeah, I think that's good. Let's do some take-homes. You go first. All right, cool. So um, there was a really good quote that I found, and this was actually inside of one of the um, Psych 101 textbooks that I use. And uh, so it was uh, Myers and DeWall quoting a guy named Allport, and he said, um, given a thimble of dramatic facts, we rush to make generalizations as large as a tub. <laughs> and that goes back to that idea I mentioned about, you know, somebody might find a handful of, of evidence to support their claim, but then try and use that to justify everything that they do. And this is this is actually something that people do very easily as you find a few examples of something. And as soon as you have maybe three or four, you're like, this is all the evidence I need. My opinion is set. Nothing's changing it now. And uh, and you make it see, you know, we make these generalizations. It's just something that's very easy to do. All right. One of the, the things that I found is pretty general and that I can stand behind is it could be this kind of cool bridge for like the differences between research and practice. What's going on there? So. Research being everything that's formally going on through universities or such entities like that. The practices of people in the trenches, you know, in air quotes, like on the ground, um, actually the, working with people, right? Yeah, the real clinicians out in the world who are dealing with real problems. Yeah. And so the idea there is that these case studies can be a way to kind of help create some conduit between those two and say, hey, this is something we might want to look into further. Well, that really leads me to mine, which is this idea, um, and we've, we've already mentioned this a couple times, is that case studies can suggest really useful ideas and concepts and lines of research. And, and this is another quote that was in that book that I mentioned earlier. Um, they said, what is true for all of us can be glimpsed in any of us. And so research into any one person can still, if there are principles that are true for all of human behavior, then you will find that in any one individual that you do looking into, or not ne necessarily human behavior, but all behavior, um, including animals and plants and all of that. But really this research with experimentation and doing good scientific study is key to getting uh, the complete picture. All right. So we already hit the strengths and weaknesses. There's a lot of them. I think it really depends on your research question though, right? Yeah, exactly. So there is no best way. It depends on what your goal is and you know your agenda as a researcher and as a clinician. All right. Cool. That's a uh... 
I think that's it. We've made our case for case studies. Ooh. All right. So <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Again, uh, like, shares, comments, critiques, feedback, Patreon support, whatever it is that you can do. That would be awesome. Um, I just ask that you're honest if you're going to give us some feedback. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, it, means, it means a lot to us. We're trying to reach as many people as are interested in this. And so hopefully you're getting something out of this. We're getting something out of this. And uh, it's, it's just been, I love doing this. this yeah. Show, so. Thank you so much. All right. With that said, this is Rhino. Abraham. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brucier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.